Hello and welcome to Say That, the podcast where your big questions get real answers. My name is Matt King. I'm your host here in the city of Chicago. And joining me here is Glenn Fitzgerald, the founder of Mission USA. I believe I'm ready. <laughs> That's very confident of you, and I appreciate it. Also joining us, Director of Mission USA Productions, Jeb Brewer. Hello! Joining us all the way from Rutgers, Tennessee, one of the pastors of Christ Community Church, Lee Younger. Slightly crestfallen from having been picked on, I am here. Who picked who, on you, who Lee? Picked on you. Oh, I'm, I'm just I'm, saying. Glenn, the, I believe I, that would be you mocking the thing he said before we came <laughs> on. Oh, yeah. Which that. is just so second nature to you now. <laughs> he doesn't even, even recognize it's happened. Yeah. Dear yeah. listener, if you ever were doing the intros and you think that that thing Glenn responded does I don't understand the context of that. He's almost certainly just repeating in a slightly mocking tone whatever <laughs> Lee said right before we hit record. That's actually that's, very true. That's <laughs> That's a, a that's a rolling bit just for the hosts. I like right. the idea that there's a a super British version of like one of those diary of a wimpy kid things called Crestfallen having been picked on. Yes. <laughs> it's like the first line of that novel. <laughs> well, we've got a lot of good stuff on the show. We've got questions, we've got our first advert advertisement. Ooh. Oh, wow. So, unless there's any pressing business. Wait a second. If we've got an advertisement, that means we're doing business, right? Period. Money. Huh? Money and business and in that on that basis, well, I have a business, maybe. a mystical business emergency wow. to declare. Mystical mystical business like selling crystals? Well, you know what? Let's just go on this ride together and All we'll right, see what happens. This, is this off. an essential oils thing, Jed? Well, it, it is essential, and I'm kind of oily, so it all works out. But now here's the main thing. Friend of the show, bona fide super fan, Adam W. Oh. We respect anonymity on this show. Sure. Well, that's too obvious. Let's call him A. Whedon. <laughs> People don't want to be associated with this show. I know I don't. None of you will ever know my real name, that's for sure. <laughs> People- I mean, do you even believe Matt King? I, I, mean, I wasn't even trying when I came up with that fake name. <laughs> People shouldn't want to be associated with this show. That much is very true. Yes. So, Adam W. Eden, he writes to the yes. show, <laughs> ah. and he says, I had a dream that you and the Say That guys opened a hamburger stand to feed disadvantaged folks. Okay. Pretty cool so far. I like that. It ended up being a disaster, though. Inevitable. Wow. <laughs> because essentially because you guys don't have the skills to actually do that. Those That's are not true. the things you're good at. Right. That's true. That's and you, true. you were eating all the extras and sent back food. So this is your official. I have done that at jobs I've had. <laughs> right. I'm all, I'm eating right now. So totally. When is he not? So this is your official warning not to do that. Uh, okay. I have a few thoughts. Please. Please. This is when this one's just right off the top. Yes. One roughly speaking, one hundred percent of the time, you say to someone. I had a dream about you last night. <laughs> that does not, it just doesn't go well from there. Well, right? not if you say it in that tone of voice. I mean, you know, it could be something nice, but if you start with, last, last night I had a dream, you were in the dream. Here's Whoa. what I'm saying to you. I've known Glenn for almost 20 years at this point. I've never heard that tone of voice. That was the creepiest thing I've ever well, you, heard in my you life. Ne- 
You've never heard him tell you he dreamt about you. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Maybe I'll dream about you tonight, Lee. <laughs> yes, I still think the tone of voice is doing a lot more work. <laughs> But so that's right there. Okay, sure. so that's off the top. That's so you know. Understand, we're the, we're actually one of the few shows where you could write us in and tell us your dreams about us. Yes, and have us not be totally creeped out. Well, well yes, that yes. strongly depends on what it is. But well, yeah, I mean, you know, we we business dreams the, welcome. Other things, maybe you keep to yourself. Yeah, yeah. We, we we don't we don't judge the you know the much you know. But uh, you, you know, see, so you have to if you're writing to other podcasts, you probably don't want to start off with. I had a dream about you last night. I had a dream, and you were doing things in it. <laughs> I feel like the poor people from Serial have gotten that email no less than a thousand times. You know that's true, dude. <laughs> so yeah, so so that that you know, so right there, we're off to a bit of a rocky start. Sure. Okay. But then we've got the 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 whole we're going to o- open a hamburger joint. Yeah. You know, that's you know, I think maybe that's just he's getting that from a lot of food that we eat on the show. Well, I've sure, never eaten sure. a hamburger on the show, but I feel like it's a word of prophecy that I need to. I think it is a Disagree word of prophecy. Disagree as the man who has to edit out all the mouth sounds less eating. What do you mean, Lee? Uh See, you people are listening to this and just like your 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 uh, pods or through a speaker or whatever. I'm going to have to listen to that in studio quality headphones. Yeah. <laughs> as I edit this show. Yeah, really high fidelity smacking of lips. Absolutely. But, but herein, I think as as Glenn is rightly pointing out, there is there's some tech some subtext here that I think needs right. needs addressing and that I think the audience thinks we'd be bad at business. And they're right. Well, well it's true, but they shouldn't say it. <laughs> Here's the thing. That many, many times on this podcast, we have tried to get into big money-making ventures. We have, yes. Yeah. And the, I don't know what the exact track record is. but Zero percent. Feels like it's pretty low. Yeah. Zero percent. So it's like not, not a lot. Yeah, no, it's, it's not a lot. But let's, let's walk this out because there was, you know, we tried it. And we didn't have the skills, right. which is true. And we ate all the things that came back, yeah. which right. is definitely what would happen. Right. Um, but let's let's walk let's walk it through this. You know, we start to say that bar and grill, okay, burgers, fries, and whatnot. Yeah. Um, what do we? How can we make this work? Hmm. Can we pitch the business plan now so that this actually gets off the ground without it turning into abject disaster? Wait, wait a second. What you're talking about is basically a planet Hollywood. Yes. Nope. Oh, this is already bad. It's like a theme, like a say that themed restaurant. It's a destination restaurant. Yeah. So you, if you're going to city, yeah, you want to go to the. Well, there's there's say that burgers Chicago. Right. There's say that burgers Milan. Right. I mean, you, right. you got them in all of your major metro. They love burgers in Milan. Oh yeah. Well, they 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 love wisdom burgers in Milan. Okay. Well, that's that's what happens, I guess. It's like piped in through the speaker. Yeah, that's right. You're getting all kinds of wisdom. With well, we've already lost all the customers. Yeah, you know, <laughs> before like, we even got to the food. But, well, we got to find an Italian guy to do it in Milan. Well, absolutely. You yeah. No, one of the problems is legal coverage because, right. of course, when we serve you your fee- your food, we declare emergency. As right. we hand it to you. Oh, clearly. The, the problem is... I think the health department's going to cl- declare emergency first. <laughs> See, that's the thing, is when the health department inevitably comes in and cries out, oh my gosh, this is an emergency, no one will listen. Right. Because they just think it's a bit. It's just all part of the right. whole thing. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's the shtick. Yeah, exactly right. 
Much yes, like sir. when we have our uh, choking customer show every hour on the hour, <laughs> when it eventually happens, no one will even bat an eyelid. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would pay for a Wisdom Burger, though. I, you know what? I think it's one of those things where people would love to do it. Yeah. You know, it's like bungee jumping. Sure. It's extremely unpleasant. Yeah. Yeah. But you get to say that you did it. Sure. Well, here's my thing is, would we be able to look at a customer and see the question behind the question yeah. and just go ahead and give them advice before yeah. they even order any food? Just tell them how to go ahead and fix whatever is broken in this thing as we perceive it. For sure. I feel like that plan, wise though it might be, is contingent on us being the wait staff. Ooh. That's a real bad idea. Yeah, that's not going to work well. Because we really do a lot of the question behind the question. It used to be a lot of like, you know, it's on a date and like, the guy's like, oh, I want to, you know, just have a nice uh, Cobb salad. And you're like, you don't want that. Right. She doesn't believe you want that. We know you, you uh, sit, you know, slide over. I'm going to fix this whole thing. Right. And right. then the food never gets out there. That's right. Yeah. You know, because we, we, we're dealing with a lot of problems here. Exactly. We're handing out fashion advice. That's That's got to be critical. Absolutely. I mean, you know, you're going to Milan. You got to tell them how to dress. Infinity scarves, in or out? Out. Okay. Well, there you go. I mean, you know, I don't want it to be true. It just is. It's, it's the <laughs> you know burden I mean? you bear. But we already ordered this scarf rack for the restaurant. <laughs> hey, look, let me tell you what. We told you, Infinity scarves out, Espadrilles in. That's it. Yeah. You yeah. know what I mean? I can't change it just because you don't like it. Sure, absolutely. This is fashion, dude. It's yeah. a science. Yeah. I feel like our Espadrilles only dress code is going <laughs> to hurt us in the winter in Chicago. <laughs> well. <laughs> so, yeah, there might be some, you know, what do you call startup issues. Like you accosting the customers for wearing the wrong thing? Yeah. yeah. That could be, it's an adjustment period is what that is. There's a, there's a strict dress code but you don't know what it is until you come in. Oh, yeah. And Glenn right. starts berating you about kitten heels. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah it's Which like he a, still doesn't know what they are, so he's going to be doing some wild guessing. It's probably, I, I mean, you know, I have a vague sense. Sure. But you know what I mean. They're harvested from real kittens. Oh, well, that's <laughs> what I was thinking. Yeah. So yeah. that's good. That's a good confirm on that. Yeah, well, we're not going to let Jed talk to the FDA people, that's for sure, because <laughs> he can't keep those jokes inside. Look, you know, uh, if somebody is not pulling off that smoky eye, you gotta, you gotta cuff them. You, you do it. not. Period. You say you are. Look, no. You, look, honey, you are <laughs> no. a winter, and <laughs> no. that dress is completely wrong for your coloration. We're gonna have to hide all the sharp objects in this restaurant. So basically, Adam brought up the idea of us running a burger joint. Within seven minutes of discussing it. We have completely devolved into madness. I think thus proving his point. Yeah. Oh. yeah. So, Adam, thank you for dreaming of us. Yeah. And thank you for dreaming of us in a realistic fashion. Yeah. Warning where, heated. Yeah, warning heated. Um, and I uh, hope you dream of us again. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I knew he was going to say that. I was going to yeah. ask him if he was going to say that. <laughs> On that basis, I declare a mystical dreamlike emergency <laughs> off. Yeah, well... We live in your dreams. In <laughs> uh, an auspicious confluence of events. I'm trying to just make up some words here so there's more buffer between Glenn doing that voice and me throwing to this ad someone asked us to put on the show. Good luck! Yeah, so a couple years back, we interviewed a gentleman named Zach Bolin, who okay. is in the band Citizens, who is getting ready for their fall tour. Zach reached out to us, asked us, if we would run a little spot to let our listeners know when Citizens is going to be coming to them, we'll take you to that right now. 
Hey everybody, it's Zach from Citizens. One problem that's continuously plagued us as a band is that we actually have too many fans. And so one of the things that we're trying to do this fall is go on tour, because once you hear us live, you probably will never listen to us again. If you live in or near Des Moines, Minneapolis, Chicago, Milwaukee, Fort Wayne, Totowa, New Jersey, Washington, DC, Lynchburg, Virginia, Greenville, South Carolina, Knoxville, Tennessee, and Nashville, Tennessee, please go to wearecitizens.net, get your tickets. We just put out a new record called Fear, and there's more coming. Whatever it takes to get you to stop listening. have the best fans in the world but one band can't have all the best fans so we got to get rid of a few which is why we're bringing along with us ghost ship the eagle and child and ally page because once you listen to all of us you'll probably never listen to music again go to wearecitizens.net and get your tickets today So, uh, tour, we know their citizens will be coming to cities where we know we have some wonderful say that super fan Chicago, Nashville, Knoxville, etc. We hope you'll go check them out. A good band and very cool dudes. Uh, so, hey, the first ever advertisement on the say that podcast, dude, I got to ask. I mean, I know it's uncouth to be this forward, but sure. uh, how much how much cash did we just get? Serious. Good cheddar. Question. Yeah. Good the question. big money. Yeah. What do you mean? Well, an advertisement is a it's a paid promotion. Like they they give you money to run their message. That's that's kind of the basics of advertising. Oh yeah. So how much money are we talking about? I I didn't ask for any money. Uh huh. I didn't wow. know that's how advertising worked. <laughs> wow. I thought I thought those ads were on the show just because Jimmy Fallon really likes Sprite. <laughs> Let me tell you why. I learned something today. Matt, have you not learned anything from rapping videos? You must ask them for the Benjamin Franklins. That's right. Okay. All right. Well, whenever we reference a Puff Daddy song. It's time to move on. It's always time to move on. And being that I forgot to ask for any money for the ad. Yeah. um, If you'd like to support us, uh, you need the one business venture we know how to do. And that would be Bridgebox. Ooh. Which is less a business venture and more us uh, making media to encourage you the fine people where it's if you're listening to this we are just in the month of september all month we are looking at how should i use the bible you know, songs from lee songs from my friends pete and tasha lots of other great stuff sermons that glenn and myself preach at the bridge bible study all sorts of great stuff on getting started or getting deeper into the bible missionusa.com slash bridge box all right we move on to our first question here it is that um bridge box topic so uh at the, on the night of the bridge uh glenn and i and lee actually as well was up here so we all preached on this topic so i thought we'd we'd kick it around to get a good little intro for folks who maybe want to check out the way we break stuff down in bridge box so that question said how should i use the bible i know it's good and i know it can help me and when other people break it down for me i get it but how do i use it when it's just me and the book and glenn where'd you kick us off here 
Well, I think this starts with looking at uh, you know, what, with what perspective are we approaching learning about the Bible? I think we can get into a perspective of, you know, I'm in this uncomfortable, I don't quite know what an Amorite is or an Edomite. <laughs> and so I, I think an Edomite is the little uh, pea pods that ring at the sushi restaurant, right? Yeah, it sounds right. I, okay. That's, They're covered in salt. Yeah. 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 You got to put some soy sauce on your Edomites. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. So, <laughs> That's right. So you you start off, you know, in this uncomfortable phase where you you, you don't know an Edomite from you know an Edomame, for example. What's an uh, Edomame? Uh, it's a, a small salamander. Oh, cool! That uh, lives in Asia. Neat. Right. I may have just made that up, but if you, you know, you get that feeling sometimes. I'm I'm just in this brief adjustment phase where I know everything that's in the Bible. It's a little embarrassing and uncomfortable, and I get to the other side, well, I'll know all the stuff that's in there. Uh, The Bible isn't like that, and that's what's great about the Bible. Every single time I open the Bible, I learn something new. And so that leaves me with the impression that there's an infinite depth in what's in there. There's always another uh, angle on this. There's always more to be learned there. And it's about embracing that and celebrating that. It's about saying, "I, I... I'm never going to have my arms around everything that's in this Bible. I can understand it in a broad sense. I can understand it thematically and have a good theological take on what's in the Word. Uh, but this is a lifelong journey, and let's let's embrace that. Let's let's uh, be comfortable with the fact that we're going to continuously be learning and growing. Uh, beyond that, it's not just about knowing it; it's really about living it and. Uh, if you're like me, I know more about the Bible than I am living out of it. <laughs> okay. Now, some of that is I know a lot of it. Sure. Because it's my day job. I get into it a bit. Some of it is I'm a pretty naughty little monkey that's really trying to work on things. <laughs> How's that going? Not well. Okay. You know, I mean, it's you know, if you look at it over the long course of time, like, that glacier was, like, 10 feet over here, like, 10,000 years ago. Totally, dude. It's, it's moving. moving. You know, you got to line it up with something, but you can see it, you know, whatever. Well, so it's the same thing here. You know, I'm I'm making progress and whatnot, uh, but, uh, you know, I need to be focused on figuring out how to live that out. I th- so I think that leads me to the, the last little piece that I put on that, that I really hear even older, more experienced Christians talk very little about, and that's meditating on the Word. Mm. Uh, and the Bible actually talks about that, you know, you yeah. know uh, uh, meditating on God's <laughs> Word day and night, and this idea of uh, taking a, just one scripture that you hear that, you know, you feel, I don't know if you experience this, but I do a lot where I'll read a verse and I'll say, that's good, but you know, it just feels like I'm missing something there. I don't, I don't know that I understand everything that verse is telling me there. But some of that is studying a bit on your own, looking it up, maybe reading a nice commentary, talking to a, a pastor or a mentor who can break that down to you. Some of that is is saying maybe the Lord's trying to show me something out of that verse. Yeah. And I need to spend some time just me and the Lord and turning that over in my mind and thinking about it and considering the ramifications of that, considering how that might be relevant to me in my life, that has a lot to do with 
being uh, having a rich Christian walk. Uh, it's not just knowing it, and I think that's a big fallacy. And I, I thank you for writing this question and giving us a chance to talk about that because I think uh, you you see a, a certain amount of academic rigor or the yeah. the impression of that being created in a lot of churches. Uh, and that's great and everything, but it really has almost no meaning. Uh, it, it, the the devil knows every word on every page. It's not made him saved yet. So, it, it, you know, you knowing that word uh, is important only to the extent that it filters down into everyday existence, making hard decisions, stepping out, making tough changes, breaking patterns of behavior and cycles that you find yourself caught in. If the word isn't doing that, then it's really about figuring out how to apply that word, not just knowing it. And that is a really fantastic place to start here. And Jed, let me get you pick us up there because I think something that Glenn was talking about uh, is going to carry over very nicely there, which is um, taking that zoomed out view yeah. of some things because uh, he's talking about some of the wrong ways to be too hard to put it, some of the uh, common pitfalls maybe that people take when they're starting to look at the Bible more for themselves. Maybe they're not in a Sunday school class so much anymore. They're, you know, not doing a regular thing. And one of those, I think, is, is he's saying to get caught up in the minutia. Yeah. And we really do need to have a bigger view to know how to break down those individual pieces, right? I think that's totally true. Here's one of the things that, that I find, and I think this goes right along with what Glenn's saying about meditating on the Word, is there are a lot of big-picture trends in the Bible. And if all we focus on is the minutiae, I think it's easy to lose a lot of the richness. I'll give you an example of what I mean. So there's a verse in the Bible that folks will cite to tell you, you got to go to church. And that verse says, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Okay. I think a fair implication is that a Christian should engage in some form of regular worship. I think that that is a fair implication. But that's not the only implication. And it's a part of a much, much bigger idea that runs throughout the entire Bible. And that idea is you become like the people you spend your time with. Okay. That's throughout the entire Bible, and it comes up again and again and again. It's expressed in a bunch of different ways. You might have heard, uh, bad company corrupts good character. Uh, That occurs both in the Old and the New Testament. Um, But that's really a sister idea to let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing. It's actually expressing maybe different sides of the same coin, but the same coin for sure. Similarly, so many of Paul's instructions to Christians in the New Testament uh, boil down to encourage each other, exhort each other, cheer one another on. Well, you can't do any of that if you're not meeting together. Um, you know, Paul is giving instructions that are built on the idea that you are spending time with other people that are on this same journey that you are on. You know, we do a lot of work in addiction recovery, and um, uh, if you want to, uh, this is unfortunately kind of a downer, but if you want to set your clock on somebody having a relapse, it's when they stop going to meetings. That's right. That That's, that's just not going to end well. And it's not because they suddenly become a bad person. It's not because they suddenly just don't care about their sobriety anymore. It's because there is strength in a community. 
Um, when you have a good, healthy community, it makes you stronger. It, it helps you. It empowers you. It, it gives you something you can't have on your own. Um, being isolated makes you less strong. And being surrounded by the wrong kind of people not only makes you less strong, it makes everything worse in a hurry. So again, there's this big picture trend that emerges as we look at everything the Bible has to say related to fellowship related to how we spend our time and who we spend our time with. Yes, again, one of the implications is it's important to go to church. I mean, some kind of regular worship. That does not need to be a Sunday morning worship service. But that's just one detail, and and it misses so much of the richness if we stop there. Uh, You know, by contrast, one other quick example of a trend is the Bible has so much to say about the role of anger in our lives. Again, Old Testament and New Testament, it comes up again and again and again. And the idea is unchecked anger will ruin your life. Unchecked anger will ruin your life and it will ruin the lives of everybody around you. And it's not even exactly like a moralistic kind of Mr. Mackey, anger's bad, so if you have anger, you're bad because anger's bad. It's not quite like that. It's more, if you look at the trend, at the broader trend, it's describing something of you can't control this. When you start going down a certain path of anger and revenge, it's going to get out of hand. And you're trying to adopt something that belongs to God. You're trying to, to take a job that God has appointed himself to do. And so you get this rich tapestry where it's not that God is looking down on you for experiencing anger. Again, if you, if you go through everything the Bible has to say about anger, you'll read, be angry but in your anger, do not sin. There, there's a clear understanding of you're going to get angry. That's okay. But what are we going to do with that anger? Right. Any one of those verses is good to know and they're valuable. But when we put together this whole tapestry of what the Bible has to say, both in prescriptive form and in narrative form, how did this work in the Bible when people lost their temper versus how did it work when they had self-control? We find this rich, rich narrative that has so much to say to our individual lives. And this is critical. It can keep us from having to learn things the hard way. This is the huge advantage of it, is you can discover how critical fellowship is by not having it and going through an awful time, or you can discover how critical fellowship is by getting the full idea of what the Bible says about it, and then saying, that sounds good, I'll go with that. Absolutely right. I think that's an excellent uh, bit about getting started there. And Leah, let me get you to pick us up here because there's a lot of, you know, I think the the wording of this uh, question we chose is really good because it's, how do I use the Bible? And that idea of using it is kind of an important concept to get our mind around here, right? Yeah, definitely. Because I think that there are really, really good ways to use the Bible, as these guys are talking about. And there are really, really crappy ways the Bible gets used. Uh, to be fair, there are folks who will use the Bible to make other people feel bad about themselves um, because they're afraid of their behaviors or they want to control or manipulate their behaviors. And um, some people right now listening to this podcast were raised in a church where they are extremely harmonizing with that idea because they're like, oh my gosh. I went to that church. Somebody used the Bible to make me feel bad. Um, that is not what we want to be on. Um, <clears throat> we don't want to use the Bible to make anybody feel bad about who they are. But that's not the only way that people use the Bible in a negative way. People use the Bible to exalt themselves over other people, um, to make themselves feel like the person that you need to come to, the person who has all the authority. And they do this by basically just knowing more of it. 
um, being able to to be kind of uh, you, you'll hear church people talk about being uh, biblically literate. In other words, I can just quote chapter and verse. Um, I can quote it in the King James. I can quote it backwards and forwards and make you feel like you know less of it. Well, that sets up an insecurity in people, and all of a sudden they feel like, well, if you know more of this book, then you probably are the person who is in authority in you know in a moral sense or in a in a teaching sense or whatever. They use it to give themselves a position in a community that they may not deserve. Now that's a very tenuous thing. That's a that's a that's a very kind of dangerous thing. But people do that kind of stuff all the time. One of the things that's very interesting, and it's a it's a unique thing that every host on this podcast has experienced before, is that when because we've all done prison ministry, is there are people who are locked up who know every single word in that book. Yep. And are not on any of it, not walking according to any of it, not 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 down with any of it, but they can quote you backwards and they can quote you under the table. Um, there's a very interesting verse that happens in John chapter five, and this is all going somewhere. Uh, Jesus says this at the end, near the end of John chapter five. He said to some people who he was in a conversation with, "You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life." These are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. That is a super interesting moment where Jesus is saying, there are people who diligently study the scriptures, know it backwards and forwards, and can use it to manipulate situations, to give themselves a certain degree of authority, to make other people feel bad about themselves, and yet they've never come to me. That is super interesting. Jesus is saying, all of this stuff was written for the purpose of bringing you to me. I'm the one who can give you life. I'm the one that can help you uh, figure out how to walk through your life. There's a, there's a, a super important thing that happens in the, in the book of James, where he says that we need to be not only hearers of the word, but doers of the word. And the thing for me on this topic is that if I want to be a person who becomes a doer of the word, then the way that I want to use the scriptures is I want to make sure that the scriptures are always drawing me closer to Jesus because he's the one who can give me the strength and the wisdom and the patience and the peace and all of the things that I'm going to need to become a doer of the word. So um, just a small example uh, you know, something is happening in my life and it's, and I'm extremely stressed out. I'm filled with anxiety about that thing. And I feel like I'm all alone and I feel like I'm, I, I have no way of coping with this thing. Well, what I want to do is I want to go toward, I want to use the, the, the Bible to take me toward Jesus so that when he says things like cast your cares on the Lord, because he cares for you. When he says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, I want to use those promises and use those verses to give me the courage and the peace and the strength that I need to actually be a doer of the word and walk into whatever the next thing that he's calling me to do. Um, I, I love this verb of how do I use the Bible? I want to use the Bible. I want to find all of these things that were written, as, as these guys are saying, written for my encouragement written for my strengthening, written, written for, to give me wisdom. And I want to use those things to draw me closer to Jesus, who is the source of eternal life, 
who is the one who can give me the courage and the patience and the peace and the love and all of the things that I need so that I can become a doer of the word and not just a hearer of it or a knower of it, somebody that would manipulate with it, but somebody who walks in it. I think that's absolutely right. And I think it, it echoes what all these guys have said, that this is the Bible is best used in the context of a growing relationship with, with the Lord. And we, it's easy to get in trouble, and it's easy if you're new to it to fall on this idea of, I need to build up a baseline of understanding before I do anything, before I try to figure this out. You know, if you were uh, working through a, a car, a manual for, you know, how to fix something in your car, you wouldn't read copyright 1976 General Motors Corporation and go, well, I think I'm ready to get a wrench out and see where this goes and <laughs> follow it along. But th- this is a thing where there can be, as, as Glenn pointed out, as all these guys kind of echoed, there's an, to utterly make up a word, academicizing, you know, this kind of making this an academic pursuit, which you can study the scriptures in academic pursuit, and there's many people who have done that to great effect, but that has no overlap with actually living out what's in there. Um, some of the uh, top uh, New Testament professors in the Western world are avowed atheists. They just study this the way they'd study Moby, Moby Dick, the way they'd study the Odyssey. It's, it is a text to be studied. But for those of us who, you know, the word is something that's living and active, as it says in Hebrews, there's this idea that whatever you got from it, you can start moving on that today. And uh, as you, as these guys are all kind of describing, as you go out in your life, as you try to do good, as you try to figure out, you know, you, re- you get up and read something about, you know, love your neighbors yourself, and you think, okay, that sounds good. I'm going to go try to do that today. And someone's really awful to you. Now you can go back and read some of the stuff about what to do when people are really awful to you, which is in there. Um, mm-hmm. And that's going to hit you in a different way than if you'd read beforehand, okay, in the hypothetical idea that I need to forgive someone, here's the the bible way I'm supposed to do that, and then gone out. When you have that thing of, I need to figure out how I'm going to do this thing I'm doing, and that brings in good fellowship, and you know, we we are big fans on this show of you know good Bible commentaries and things like that, and it's good to study in a group, but a lot of this is going to come down to are you trying to live and then let the Bible inform the way you're living, or are you trying to sit in a room, as we we often joke, sit in a, a plain white room with nothing on the walls and no <laughs> uh, infestations of any kind, and obtain perfect knowledge of this, the hidden wisdom within this book that you think will kind of be the cheat code to let you go out and and live this amazing Christian life, which is, if you get right down to it, the way a lot of people who write books and, you know, articles about Bible stuff kind of talk about it, you know, that if you, if you under, you may have, if you really understood what was in this book, you know, you'd live this amazing life, which is, as Glenn points out, you know, the, the, the actual literal Satan understands, not only doesn't it have memorized, understands everything that's in that book. He's just not doing it. So we're not, we're not looking for full understanding as part of living as opposed to understanding so that we can start doing things. It's definitely, I think, a good place to start. I'm going to move on to our next question here. This comes in anonymously. If you hang this all the way to the end or scroll down to your episode description, you'll find those addresses where you can touch this. This question says, When I see someone struggling, I know God wants me to help them. People always talk about sacrificial love, and at my best, I make those sacrifices for the people I love. Sometimes doing this gets me into more trouble than, it thought, than I thought it would, and occasionally those I care about are tricking me or even end up hurting me while I'm helping them. Is that just what sacrificial love means? And it's a great question, and Jen, why don't you kick us off here? Uh, we love you. We're so glad you wrote in. This is a great question. Short answer, no, that is not what sacrificial love means. So, no. 
But it makes sense to wonder about that because that's a phrase that gets used a lot, not only in Christian circles, but in the broader culture. And it gets misused a lot. Uh, it gets used to mean something else quite a little bit. So let's, let's define it. And this is something that I learned from Glenn. So sacrificial love just means a short-term pain on your part for the sake of a long-term benefit on the other person's part. That's what sacrificial love is. Let's say that again. Sacrificial love is a short-term pain on your part for a long-term benefit on the other person's part. Now, this is the critical thing. If there is not a long-term benefit, this is just suffering. It's not sacrificial love. We, we've just missed the point. But let me give you two contrasting examples, because I think uh, it'll illustrate it, and I think you'll be able to track with it real, real easy. They both involve you, your buddy, and your car. So suppose that your buddy comes to you, and he's been out of work for a while, and he says, I got a job interview. It's tomorrow morning. I'm a shoe in One problem it's at 7 a.m. I don't have a way to get there. I know it's a pain. Is there any way you could wake up early and take me to this job interview? Now, maybe your job doesn't start till nine. So you're literally going to be getting up like an hour and a half earlier than you normally would. You're just going to be killing time. But you go, I know my buddy needs a job and this could be a great opportunity. It's one day. You know what? Yes, I'm, I'm going to do that. It's, I, I'm going to make that sacrifice because if this works out, man, this would really change everything for my buddy. That could be a really cool idea. That could definitely be an example of showing sacrificial love and be an amazing thing. Now, suppose the same buddy comes to you and he says, dude, I was looking online, been out of work for a while, and I found a $10,000 bottle of wine. And I just think it would be amazing. I'm wondering, can you sell your car and get the money? And buy me that bottle of wine so I can drink it and enjoy it. Okay, A, that's no. But, but why? Let's actually look at it. Because the bottle of wine doesn't make his life better. There's right. no benefit here. It's a huge, I mean, enormous sacrifice on your part. Like the kind of thing, if you live anywhere in America, that would make your life completely unmanageable because we live in a society where it's almost impossible to not have a car in the U.S. So it would almost destroy your life. And it would be no net positive to him. I mean, he, he would enjoy it for an hour, but then there would be no net positive after that. That would be a <laughs> terrible, terrible idea. But it's worth looking at these two examples because in both cases, you, you have the buddy and he says, there's a thing that I want that would bring joy and peace and goodness into my life. And it requires something of you that you'd probably rather not do. Both of these stories do have that in common. It's true. Critically, what are the differences? The first difference is what's the actual net benefit to the buddy? Yeah. Take him to the job interview, huge net benefit. Absolutely, no question. Buying him a bottle of booze, no net benefit. None at all. The second difference is what's the scale of the ask? One day waking up an hour early, that's not nothing, but you know, it's a manageable thing. The other is selling your means of transport to hook me up. These are, are hugely, hugely different. And I know this is an almost cartoonish example, but it's important to go through it for a few reasons. One, it illustrates the point. But the second is, you talk about people are, let me read your exact phrase here. Um, people are tricking you and may end up even hurting you. People that are trying to get something out of you have a way, in general, of focusing on the ways in which this is the same as help and downplaying the ways in which it's not. Right. There's a thing that I want that I would feel good about, and you have the power to make that happen. Why won't you just love me, bro? Why won't you just love me? Yeah. The phrase that we use is people... We're family. We're family, bro! People, the phrase we use are... Mom, the, stop calling me bro. <laughs> <laughs> the phrase we use up here is people who are on the hustle. 
Uh, people around the hustle, they love to play that game of we're going to emphasize the things about this that are legit right. and massively downplay all the things that are not legit about this. So what this brings us to is if you want to help people in a weird sense, you have a responsibility. The first responsibility is to figure out what is legit and what is not legit. That actually is your job in this situation. And a big part of that, and I know this is going to sound almost judgmental, but it's unavoidable. You have to figure out what would or would not benefit this person. That's it. If people are asking... Yeah, you got to give yourself permission to do that. Exactly right. You have to appoint yourself the mediator of what would or would not help this person. And that can feel almost unchristian because like, who are you? I'm the person with the pocketbook. I'm the person with the car. So I'll be deciding what this car gets used for. And if you can dig it, actually, that's a scriptural responsibility because that's literally what it means to be a good steward. To recognize whatever resources I have, whether it's my car or my pocketbook or my schedule or whatever, God gave that to me. He didn't just give it to me. He entrusted it to me. And he entrusted it to me in order to do certain things and yield certain results. If we can find a way that your request is in line with the things God wants to see happen, well, I think there's something that we could do here together. If it's not, I have an obligation. I have a spiritual and scriptural obligation to say no to you about this. Now, I can be polite about that. I can be kind about that. I can be gentle about that. And by all means, absolutely. But I have a responsibility to determine what is and is not a faithful usage of the resources of whatever type that I've been entrusted with. If you put yourself in the driver's seat in the way that I just described, I think you're going to find a lot of the problems that you're describing in your question begin to go away. Yeah. It's a very, very good point. And Lee, I'd love to get to pick us up there. Jed's describing this idea of someone asking for something that sounds like help is help-ish, but is really going to do them more harm than good and not going to good for yeah. you either. And we have an actual term for that. Can you break that down for us? Yeah. So there is a, uh, the term is an enabling. Um, you may have heard this before, and that is that I am enabling someone to continue in an unhealthy behavior by doing what they decide is supporting them. Um, One thing that Jed said that is super duper important in this, as we are trying to figure out some discernment on what do I need to do and what do I need to not do, is that anybody that's on the hustle is going to define their situation in the terminology of whatever you do would be loving to them. They're always going to define it that way. The terminology is going to be, if you do this, that would be loving towards me. That's an important thing for you to know, because that that word has the ability to kind of uh, derail our discernment. When you hear the word love, it's easy for you to get derailed and for you to not be able to discern what is right or appropriate or healthy or good. Uh, because love is good. And so if they have the right to to define all the terminology, then you are going to be uh, hampered in your ability to make a, a wise decision. I love what Jed said about you being able to, and these are discernment tools, the things that he said. He said, you need to be able to figure out what is the net benefit of helping this person and what's the scale of the ask. I wrote that down just because you need to hear it again. Uh, because everybody in these situations, those are such key questions. What's the net benefit of me of me doing this thing this person's asking me to do? And what's the scale of the ask? 
Because the person that's on the hustle will always define helping them as love. Let's be very clear about this. Love is not whatever they want. That's not what love is. Love is not doing whatever somebody wants to happen for them. Love is whatever would be best for someone. When I love someone, it's because I am committed to their best, to their health, to their best. That's what loving is. There is a phrase in the 12-step program that I think is amazing. And I heard this from Glenn. I think he's exactly right. That in AA or the 12-step programs, all their cliches are amazingly true. Uh, Not every program has great cliches. Most cliches are terrible. But in AA or the 12-step programs, their cliches are great. And they have a great one for this question, which is this. Your love is killing your loved one. Um, That is a great definition of enabling. Because the person who is who is trying to get you to do something that you shouldn't do or that would be unwise, they are defining it as love. But when you are enabling someone to continue in an unhealthy behavior, your quote-unquote love is killing your loved one. What you have to do is exactly what Jed said. You have to be able to discern, is this something that, this thing that they're asking me to do, is this something that would promote their health? Is this something that would promote uh, them moving forward? If not, then I'm going to have to say no. Love is not whatever they want. Love is what would help, what would work, what would be healthy. Those are important questions. Would this help? Would this work? And would this be healthy? If not, the, and this is, what's, this is not going to feel right, I know, but trust me, trust me, trust me, it's true. No matter what they're saying to you and what terminology they're using, if it's not going to help, if it's not going to work, if it's not going to be healthy, the most loving thing you can say is, I love you and no. It's a no. That's the most loving thing that you can say. And so that's the thing that we have to determine. We have to use discernment, which is not something a lot of folks are super used to. We have to use discernment and specifically along the lines of what Jeb was talking about in his answer. And you could just rewind it and listen to it again. But we've got to figure out, we can't let them determine what the uh, parameters of love are. We have to remind ourselves that love is about what would help, what would work, and what would be healthy. You can't listen to them define it, because what they are defining as love is just whatever I want um, if somebody is in an unhealthy place. We have to use discernment so that we make sure that our love is not killing our loved one. Excellent, excellent stuff. And Glenn, love you to pick us up there, and Lee mentions things about enablement and uh, the world of good cliches. Yeah. Let us switch to the world of bad cliches. Yeah. As the previous mentioned, we are family. And yeah. I never give up on anyone. Yeah. And all these things that sound great until they're doing a massive amount of harm. That's right. Yeah. I, you, there's a certain tone of you have to. It's family. You have to. It's church. You have to. I the We talk a lot about on this show about the have-tos and the get-tos. When somebody's pitching have-tos to you, that's the time to disagree, regardless. Everything about the the life that God wants us to live is a get-to. He's setting us free to live a better life and a freer life. So we want to get away from that. Uh, These other fellows have really done an amazing job. I think they both crushed this question. And I think 
you know, I, I agree with them that this is enabling. Here's a big thing about enabling when you really, really think about it is they're asking for too little. Somebody says, I want to buy a bottle of wine because I feel bad that I don't have a job versus I want you to help me get a job. One of those is really small. And as Jed's pointing out, is not going to do a lot of good. You know, the, the sacrifice, there's almost no sacrifice to be worth that as a benefit because it's, it's almost no benefit, you know. Uh, people will ask for very little, a lot, and that's a that's an that, sometimes that's a hustle maneuver. You know that's the way people are trying to do it. But sometimes people don't think they can get a lot out of that situation, out of you, a lot of help out of you. Uh, many many times when people ask me for help, I'm saying, okay, wait, stop. Let's look at the big picture here. I want to do something that's really going to make an impact here. Mm-hmm. I want to really turn this thing around. You have some ideas here. I'm not discounting them, but let's take a fresh look at this together because I might be able to do you a whole lot more good than than what you're asking me for. And I'm ready to do that, you know, per, per what Jed is saying. If it's a short-term thing where I'm helping you out and we have a chance for a big help on the other end, I might be willing to do twice what you're asking me for because I get 10 times the benefit. To me, That I, it, it would seem crazy for me not to do that for you. Why make any sacrifice if it's not really going to have an impact? So I think, uh, you know, you're asking for too little in, instead of uh, it, when we put that in our mind, it's easier for us to confront people with that. If you're saying you're asking too much, I'm not going to go, you know, get you this bottle of wine instead of whatever it is to extend Jed's analogy. Uh, because I'm that's not. You know, it sounds unchristian to say you're asking me for too much there. But the reality is, in many cases, they're asking for too little. Final thing, let's look at it this way. Everything is a risk. You know, if the guy says, I can get this job if I can get to the job interview, that's a maybe. It's not 100%. Nothing in life is guaranteed. So you're taking a chance. I'm going to make a sacrifice, but it's a gamble. Will this pay off? Will Will it not? If that's what it is, if all of these things are investments or these these are these are uh, wagers that we are placing, we need to really be careful about and and focused on how are those odds calculated? You know, am I am I calculating the odds of this working out based on what they say is going to work out because they're going to tell me it's going to work out maybe a little more often than it will. Am I doing that according to what I think will work out, or what sounds right or makes sense to me, and maybe I don't know the situation very well, so that's not so good? Or am I listening to what the Lord is telling me about this? And sometimes the Lord comes to me and says, this is, you know, this is what I want you to do, and it's not going to work out, but it's important that you're there for him. You know, you're going to be driving him to the John Review, and you're going to, here's some things to tell him that's really going to, you know, the job interview is just an excuse to have the time to tell him the thing, whatever it is. But we have a way of ignoring, I have a way, this is, I'm going to point the finger at me. I have a way of ignoring those odds and saying, I'm going to shoot for the moon. Somebody needs help, ask me for help. Let's do it. Let's just, you know, we'll take a shot. It doesn't matter how long the odds are. And I'm not praying about that. I'm not making smart decisions about that. And I'll get myself overloaded with that. And that's what we want to help you avoid. That's all really, really good stuff from these fellows on that. We'll move on to our final question here. It comes in anonymously, and it says, My church talks a lot about missionaries, which is great. I love that we support people doing work all over the world. The problem is that sometimes 
It makes me feel like if I'm doing anything other than working full-time for ministry and getting people to pray the sinner's prayer, that I'm like a second-class Christian. How do I deal with those feelings? And Lee, why don't you kick us off? Um, I'm, I'm super glad you wrote this in. This is a really cool question. Um, and, and I love the way you framed it at the end. How do I deal with these feelings? That's an important part of this, because you, know, you, you framed it by saying, the stuff my church is on is really cool. That's good. And, and, and I totally agree. I think that's awesome. I hope more churches are on that, uh, being, uh, you know, supporting missions and, and, and letting people know how important it is. I, I hope more churches are, are, on that, are on that tip. So that's really good. But, you know, you've been set up to have this kind of feeling and you're wanting to know how to deal with that. I think that's a, a really good question. And I would say this, as far as the idea that you're a second-class Christian if you're not doing, you know, uh, you know, evangelism or outreach or, you know, having a conversation with someone where they're accepting Jesus or something like that, I would say this: according to Jesus, the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is the person who is the servant of all. That's really cool. That's really cool news for everybody because, you know, it, it's funny because if. If I didn't know that verse was in the Bible, and you came to me and said, I'm worried that because I'm not doing this thing, I'm a second-class Christian. If I didn't know about that verse, I would say, well, there are no second-class Christians. We're all the same. Everything is the same. I, I, would be, I would have a temptation in myself to think that's the way probably Jesus would think. But actually, when somebody said, we want to be the greatest, Lord, he didn't say, there is no greatest. We are all the same. He said, if you want to be the greatest, let me tell you how to do it. You serve everybody else. If you win at serving, you win at being the greatest. That's really crazy. I would never have come up with that. That's one of those moments where if you were to cover up the, the verse with your thumb for somebody who's never read it, they would never guess what Jesus was going to say right there uh, until you uncovered it and they read it. If you didn't know what was going to happen, you would never guess that that's the thing that he would say is, Jesus is actually going to tell you point blank how to be the greatest. And he totally does. Here's the really interesting thing about this. When Jesus says, this is how to be the greatest, he doesn't say, if you are a really amazing preacher, you'll be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He doesn't say, if you are a really amazing evangelist, You'll be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He doesn't say, if you're an amazing church planter or worship leader or everybody else that we that our culture gives the mic to when they want to know how do Christians see this thing in our society, they hand the mic to a 20-year-old worship leader. What do you think about this, Trevor? You know, that, that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is the person who serves everybody else. That's really good news for you. And that's really good news for me, because that means that if I don't want to be a second-class Christian, all I've got to do is find somebody in need and meet that need. That's awesome news. That's great, because that's something you can do right now. No matter what your gifts are or aren't, no matter what your, you know, what, you know, what the ministries available or aren't available, 
Everybody needs somebody to make the coffee and set up the chairs and make brownies for somebody who's hurting and write a note to that person who's in the hospital and the spouse of that person who's in the hospital and have some coffee with somebody who's having a hard time. You do those things. And here's what we can tell you right now. You're not a second class Christian. You are the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. That's awesome news. Um, I think the really important question here is, in the middle of this, one, what is Jesus asking me to do today that would be serving somebody else? Period, point blank, the end. Who has needs around me right now that I can serve? Um, You can do something right now for somebody else to meet somebody's need, and that would make you the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, bar none. Um... The other thing is, is that Ephesians chapter 2 says specifically that the Lord has something for everybody to do, something that he's made for you. We are his, the poem that he's writing. Um, everybody's individual, every poem is different. And there's something that he's calling you to do. Go to him and ask him, show me what that thing is. Help me find that thing. I want to do that thing. You don't have to be Billy Graham or you don't have to lead somebody in a sinner's prayer or whatever, whatever, whatever. You don't have to be a preacher. You don't have to be an evangelist. Whatever Jesus is calling to you, it all counts. It all works. It's all important. And he wants it all to get done. And so whatever he's calling you to do, if you're committed to walking in that, and if you're committed to serving people, you are right on track, right where you should be. It's a great place to start off. And Jed, I'd love to get you to pick us up there. Um, I think part of what um, people may get a little caught up in this, in the this idea of feeling second class is this idea of, I think it's important for us to acknowledge that idea of a sense of class. Yeah. That some people draw this thing where um, it's, you know, there's the great heroes of the faith and the people who are out doing stuff now. And they're in a very real sense, a priestly class. They yeah. are, they're what we should aspire to and they are, they're holier than, than the rest of us who just kind of have jobs and stuff, which is right. kind of, you know, I guess if you have to. Sure. I mean, if you don't have enough faith to, well, go to China and not ask for money, and then mm. maybe you can just get a job. Um, but this idea of there's this, I think that does seep into a lot of this stuff. If there's some people who are just like, man, they must be turbocharged to do that, and does it mean I need to like take that step to get there? So, how do we, what does the Bible have to say about this idea of, you know, there are some jobs or lifestyle choices that just make you more godly than others? That's a great question. So, let's start here for a second. One of the interesting ways of looking at all this that Paul uses is the idea that, in a sense, Christians are soldiers under a command, um, that, that we have a, a commander and we want to please our commander. And that's, you know, in many ways what it, what it is to be a Christian. So my wife was in the Army, and one of the things that I've learned from Hallie is that when you're in the Army, you are to follow commands. You will be given an objective your job is to do the objective. Your job is not to come up with a different objective that you feel more inspired about and do that one instead. Your job is to do this objective. Whether you... I know I'm supposed... You told me to dig a trench, Sarge, but I feel like pilots are the real star of the show. <laughs> so I'm just going to use my gifts that way. Yeah. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't work that way in the Army for a lot of reasons, but, but one of them is that um, the Army recognizes every job we have is critical. And if it doesn't get done, everything falls apart. 
Um, so you think of the army and you think of guys that are, that are, you know, kicking in doors and, and fighting the bad guys gun in hand and whatnot. And, uh, my, my wife worked actually in, um, a field called logistics, but they, they basically made sure that people had, as she put it, bullets and beans. They had you know, everything they could need. And the way that, that her group referred to themselves is the man behind the man behind the gun. And it's a really interesting perspective because, again, we, we all think of crap commandos with, you know, muscle bound and whatnot. But, dude, if they don't have a gun, this, this whole thing kind of falls apart. Someone actually has to take care of, of that part of it. So if we want to take Paul's counsel and see ourselves as soldiers, then we would want to recognize that God has a mission and an assignment for each of us. And that what matters is not, do we have the really exciting assignment? What matters is, are we living fully into the mission that God has for us? To give an example of this, we're going to turn to the Old Testament, this is the book of Exodus, chapter 31, and we're actually going to get to hear God's perspective on this, because God actually speaks to this. So the context here is that God is talking to Moses, and God has described, I want you to basically uh, put some stuff together so that people can worship me properly. I want there to be um, a tent where you guys can all get together, and I want there to be, uh, you might have heard of the Ark of the Covenant before, I want that to exist, I want there to, you know, so they're having this broader discussion. And this is God speaking. Uh, then the Lord said to Moses, and I'm going to do my best with some of these names, you bear with me. See, I have chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur of the tribe of Judah. I did pretty well. And I have filled him with the spirit of God. Well, that sounds pretty inspiring. With wisdom. Oh man, this guy's he's going to be like he's going to be like an anointed word guy. He's going to get on that mic and rock it. With understanding, totally. I'm called it. He's like a prophet and like a priest, maybe a worship leader. With knowledge, okay, I I feel really confident in what I'm predicting here. And with all kinds of skills, so this dude is like a mega church pastor. Right. He's going to be that's what we're going to He's going to be the total package because he's got everything. Spears, Mike and everything. Totally. I mean, I'm that's where I'm putting my money. Let's read on and see if I'm right. I've given him all this quote to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver and bronze to cut to cut and set stones to work in wood and to engage in all kinds of crafts. Oh, oh, okay. Pause for a second. I. I'm confused, but the Lord is so insistent about this, he goes on. Moreover, I have appointed Oholiab, son of Ahizamak, of the tribe of Dan, to help him. Let's pause there for a second. God looked at something he wanted done. He needed someone that could cut some stones, polish some gems, do some woodworking, and he said, this is so important. I'm filling this dude with my spirit and with wisdom and with skill and with knowledge. And I've got a right hand man exactly for him to make sure that it all goes well. That's kind of an amazing thing that God, not Moses, this isn't Moses talking, that God would say, this job is really important and I need it to be done right. And I've got just the guy to do it. We don't in our churches think of woodworking as a particularly holy thing. Like, you know, we don't have a minister of woodworking that you can go see for your woodworking spiritual needs. We have a way of thinking, well, there's spiritual stuff, which is basically singing pretty and talking pretty, and then there's the rest of you people. But God clearly does not see things that way, like at all. And I think the thing to be taken away from that is that any form of work can be holy if we simply give it over to God. One of the things about the dude in this chapter Belizelel or whatever his name was, is God gave him all the skill and whatnot, but he still had to choose to give it back to God. 
he still had to choose to use that in a way that honored the Lord, in a way that, that did the things that God wanted done, that, that fulfilled that mission. He still had to do that. I think any work, when we choose to give that back to God, can be amazing, can be holy, can be something sacred. And I think really going back to some of the things Glenn was saying on a previous question, it's that developing that conversational relationship where we can invite God to weigh in on those things and tell us how he wants those gifts and those opportunities that he's given us used. And man, if you're doing that, you're doing it as good and as righteous as anybody ever has, and we're proud of you. Absolutely. Glenn, where would you close this off? Well, I want to echo what these guys are saying, and I want to make this absolutely clear. You may have the thought that you are sort of a second-class citizen or you know, on the B team or, you know, whatever. We do not have that viewpoint at all. And anyone who would is also, if, if anybody's on the B team, it's those people. Yep. You know, because they're, 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 if they have to puff themselves up, that's an insecurity thing because they're not getting things done. So, you know, that's the B team. Uh, we don't, we don't agree with that. So let me see what I can do to attack. And here's, here's the, here's where I want to start. I know it's tough, maybe, or, or it seems wrong, maybe, for us to think of ministry in mathematical terms. But if I give you a ministry operation and I tell you to run that ministry, you can you can spiritualize it and and get ethereal and supernatural and mystical and all that with it. But sooner or later, you have to pay a bill. Sooner or later, you have to you know. Uh, arrange things so that they function properly. Someone drills into your gas tank, and you have yes. to have that repaired. The thing that actually <laughs> happened to our van that, uh, you know, yeah. Uh, so this is what happens is it comes down to a very, again, math seems wrong to apply it, but that's how it works in the final analysis. So here's the mathematical formula. It is how much ministry can we do per hour and per dollar spent. So if you give me a lot of money and I know what I'm doing on my mission field and I've you know got all my ducks in a row, I can get a lot of ministry done. If uh, I don't have enough time to get it done, but I have that money, I can hire people and put more man hours to work on this so there's more time on task, I can get things done. It always comes down to this formula. Now, why is that important? Here's why it's important. If I have a volunteer, and I have the best volunteers on the planet, those volunteers do ministry work that is comparable to any of the staff that I have. Okay? You say, well, okay, yeah, but they're only doing it so many hours of the day. Yes, but I'm not paying them to do it. Does it cost me money? That's great. It's as efficient as it could possibly be. When you're looking, if I if if I put you in charge of this ministry, for example, that I do, you would look at there's almost no money and there's almost no time. And how are we going to get this thing done? If somebody comes in and says, as a volunteer, I'm going to come in and do this and I'm going to help out with this. That is as valuable a resource as I have. So it's not less than. It's it is it is a more efficient uh, part of my operation. That's. That's the part I can't do without. Here's the other thing I want to say to kind of you know attack this mentality. The thing that people don't understand about missionaries, and I'm just begging you to let this sink into your brain, you can 
accomplish more by helping a missionary than that missionary can do on their own. I'm going to try and say that again. You can do more than a missionary by helping that missionary. So, okay, how does that work? So picture, here's a person in a third world country. They are, uh, you know, they don't speak the language. They're not from this part of the world. They're struggling. They may have a Bible that's been translated into this language. They may not. Who knows? But man, I just show up in the village one day and I'm trying to say, you know, hey, there's this Jesus thing and I don't have a book or anything and I get, I'm trying to explain it to you and a lot of hand gestures and, you know, how long is this going to take? And how difficult is this going to be? Now imagine in this third world village where this is taking place, half of the children in that village die every year because there's no clean drinking water. Okay. Now picture someone like you says, I'm going to drill a well in this village so they have clean drinking water. I'm going to put it right next to the church that's being built here. And that's, you know, this is where we're going to show them something. We're going to show, I'm not just here to tell you a thing. I'm here to care for you, body, mind, and soul. And this is an important thing, and we can do it, and we're going to show, this is how we earn the right to be heard, and this is what we're doing. Suddenly, the level of impact this person is going to have over time has gone up by a factor of 10. You are responsible for nine-tenths of the ministry that happens after that. (laughs) Not the missionary. The missionary is just the conduit through which you are doing amazing things. If I could get all Christians everywhere to think of it that way, ministry would explode everywhere we're going. It's really important for you to recognize if you have a missionary that you know, that you love, that you think the world of, that, that person for you represents an opportunity for you to kick butt. That's what the, I hope that I've, I've made my case on that because that's how we view it. You know, we look at um, friends of ours who do, and we, we have this, we have people who do more out there stuff than what we do. And we, it, it's not many, and it's maybe not way, way out there further than what we do, but they, we have those people. And our greatest joy is going to them and saying, what do you need? How can we help? Even if it's just buying them a hamburger and listening and encourage and whatever, we're jealous for the chance to do that. That's exciting to us. Uh, so that we're that's even as people who do it on a full time basis. Uh, to to go back to to Jed's analogy with the military, the same thing came up in uh, uh, the book of Nehemiah, it's chapter four. They're rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem, and that the enemies see them getting the walls together and they say this this could be trouble and these people are getting themselves organized and they're getting excited and they're coordinated and whatever so we're going to attack them while they're building the wall to keep them from finishing the wall you see what i'm saying but nehemiah says okay half of you people are going to put the bricks in the other half you're going to grab a spear and you're going to stand there and somebody tries to mess with a guy laying a brick you jab him with the pointy end then we're just going to keep going. Okay? Here's what I'm saying is, is the person holding the spear the important one, or is the person laying the brick the important one? It don't matter. It's all the same operation. You know, we get it in our minds. One is the important one. They both need each other. It's almost like, I'm just going to throw this analogy out there. It's like parts of a body, 
Whoa. They all work together. Whoa. One can't say to the other, I have no need of you. Whoa. So that's a, a, a you know. You should write a book, bro. I think I am. And I, I'm going to do a sermon series. That's, yeah. what, that's what the people are dying for. But I, yeah, I think the, the, in the final analysis, it's about looking at your life and saying, I'm only able to do certain things. I look at myself that way. There's only certain things I can do. It's about looking at what you're able to do and say, do, where can I find an outlet to really kick butt? And that's what the relationship with a missionary should give you. That's all really, really good stuff. I think it's uh, one last thing I'll close out on here is, <clears throat> so let's try to understand the, the, the concept of see things from the church's side. So you got a church that does good stuff, sports missions. Obviously, you know, we're, we're missions. We we think that's great. We think more churches should do that. And really, a, if you go to a church that makes missions a central part of its thing, you're, in our estimation, going to one of the good ones because a lot of them don't do that. The thing that makes someone, I don't really like the hero idea. I don't really yeah. make point to have heroes in my life. So I think that you have to simplify that down. So if we're getting a simplified idea of a hero, of, you know, uh, let's take someone I, who I do think is great. Hudson Taylor starts the China Inland Mission, goes out and, done it, and found really smart ways to do it and really interesting stuff and all that. But the thing that makes that guy amazing is not that he went to China. Because if I went to China, it would be a disaster. Right. Because God's not calling me to go to China. Right. The thing that makes that guy's life cool is he listened to what the Lord had, to, where the Lord led him, did it, and did it faithfully. And there's nothing higher about the call to do that than the call to work a nice job and have a house where you let people come in and you're, you hang out and you have a good marriage that other people can see as a thing and maybe give a little money, maybe do a short term mission trip. Those aren't things that are, you're trying to cobble together as much cool stuff as this person. That is the Lord's leading you in ways and you're following for those of us who are in full time ministry. That's all we did. He just happened to lead us here. Nothing inherently more holy or more godly about that. It, at the end of the day, it does come down to um, following where the Lord's calling you and not letting anything, even well-meaning people, make you feel bad that he called you into what he called you into. And maybe that's a nice nine-to-five job and a house and kids and a dog and the whole thing. That's great. If that's where he's calling you, that's awesome. He need, The kingdom also needs miscreants like us who go out and do the weird stuff, but it needs people who do th- those things as well. Again, this all boils down to if you're faithfully following through on what thing God's calling you to, don't let anyone, even people who are trying to motivate or, you know, uh, educate or tell you about missionary, don't let that make you feel bad, both because that's not good for you. And my guess would be that's not what the person talking about this from the mic wants you to feel. Mm-hmm. They don't want you to feel helpless and bad. They want you to see a role for how you can follow the Lord, which you definitely can do in your own life. All right. If you have a question for us, say at podcast, gmail.com, bridgechicago.tumblr. Dot com if you want to keep that anonymous. Once again, check out our friends Citizens who are going on tour this fall. There's a link in the episode description. Also in the episode description is those addresses where you can touch with us. Take out the song this week. This comes from our August edition of Bridgebox. This is where, to the podcast audience, we debut a new younger. Whoa. is a song called Anyone featuring the vocal talents of Miss yeah. Younger. Take out that. Thanks for listening. Just remember, we love you. God loves you. There's nothing you can do about it. To say that podcast, maybe next time we'll dream about you. <laughs> <laughs> so creepy. Can you-